folklore, the beliefs, traditions and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. When the winter winds blow and the Yule fires are lit, it is best to stay indoors, safely shut away from the dark paths and the wild heaths. Those who wander out by themselves during the Yule nights may hear a sudden rustling through the tops of the trees, a rustling that might be the wind, though the rest of the wood is still. But then the barking of dogs fills the air and the host of wild souls sweeps down, fire flashing from the eyes of the black hounds and the hooves of the black horses. Those atmospheric words were written by Gveldulf Gunderson, a non-fiction writer specialising in Germanic mythology and paganism, and describe the danger of straying out at times when the wild hunt was said to ride abroad. Gunderson, in fact, is a nom de plume of American author Stephen Grundy, who under his own name writes modern adaptations of legendary sagas. I'm Mark Norman. I'm a folklore researcher and author. I am interested in the broad field of folklore, but there are some areas in which I concentrate my work. My particular area of research specialism is in black dog folklore, ghostly apparitions of black dogs that haunt the landscape. If you are not familiar with the motif, then think of The Hound of the Baskervilles, the Sherlock Holmes story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, as a starting point. But then, keep listening to find out much more. I hold what is thought to be the UK's largest archive of eyewitness accounts, legends and traditions about the black dog. I'm also the author of a book, Black Dog Folklore, which is the first full-length study of the subject by an individual author. In this episode of the Folklore Podcast, I'll draw on all of this to examine links in folklore between these phantom dogs and the legend of the Wild Hunt. The Wild Hunt, or possibly The Raging Host, or other titles, is a piece of folk mythology well known across much of Europe, although its form varies slightly in each of the geographical areas in which it is found. In spite of these regional differences, the fundamental aspects of the myth remain the same that of a group of phantom huntsmen, on horses 
and accompanied by hounds rampaging across the land or the sky in pursuit of quarry. In some aspects, the hunt may be made up of the dead, in others, fairies, and the pack may also be accompanied by demons. The leader of the pack again varies based on local tradition or by local character. In all cases, to see the hunt can foretell some form of disaster and will usually lead to the death of the witness if they do not follow some prescribed manner of avoiding the sight. The root of the wild hunt myth most likely lies with the Teutonic god Woden, Odin in the Norse. As the god of the wind, he was said to ride through the skies on his eight-legged steed, Slepnir. Because at one time it was believed that the souls of the dead were carried away on the winds of a storm, Odin became the leader of spirits. He would ride out to gather the dead, and so, at times of a storm, he began to develop an association with the weather. From here, the presaging of death or misfortune was added to the legend. As I've just noted, the mythology was adopted and developed on a regional basis across the geographical areas of Europe, and with this different characters were installed as the leader of the hunt, such as King Arthur or Charlemagne in the Middle Ages. It is, of course, a natural step to introduce the demonic elements, and in some cases to include the devil himself as the head of the pack. Indeed, as with all things, Christian influences would later be applied to the mythology, meaning that the hunt became adopted as a motif for the devil hunting out the souls of evil sinners or unbaptized children. Apparitions of ghostly black dogs have been a part of folklore for nearly a millennia now, but yet they are often overlooked and seldom studied with any seriousness. They are seen all over the world, but are far more common in the United Kingdom. Many people, in point of fact, know little, if anything, about the folklore of the black dog, despite this long time frame. The dog is unique in folklore terms. All domesticated animals functioned as an extension of man, and many still do to a lesser extent. In ancient times they supplied hides for warmth or protection. They gave food for strength or to prolong life. Bones were used as weapons or tools, and horns provided a more varied voice before the natural one was developed. In later development, cats killed the vermin which evaded human capture, and horses lent speed and strength for journeys, or in times of war. But the dog is somewhat different. The dog was certainly domesticated as far back as the Mesolithic times, and there is evidence which suggests that in fact they were kept as pets even in the Upper Paleolithic. Of all the creature companions, it is the canine that has associated itself with mankind from the earliest possible times. He may be considered man's best friend, emerging from the primeval forest as a fellow huntsman. The dog contributed speed and cunning to the chase, and his bite to the battle. It is easy to see how the symbol would become part of the wild hunt tradition. Dog ghosts appear to have been seen, as I've already noted, all over the world. The interpretation of them, of course, depends on the religious views of each community. Some hold the dog to be unclean, others see them as part of the family. Phantom dogs are common in Europe, and, following on from that, wherever there are European settlers in other continents. 
In Britain, ghostly black dog apparitions may be divided into two main types. The first of these is the true black dog, which is usually just like any other large dog to look at. And secondly, there is the bar guest type. The bar guest appears in various shapes, but generally that of a dog. It is dangerous and ominous to meet it, especially head-on, and in this way it has parallels with the ghostly pack which accompanies the wild hunt. The bar guest type of dog is particularly prevalent in wide areas of East Anglia and in the north of England, from Cumberland down to the Yorkshire Dales, as far south as the Peak District. There are some overlaps between the traits of these two types of ghostly dog, but for the most part we can consider them as separate genera, to borrow a scientific term from their living counterparts. There is a popular superstitious conception that all black dogs are an omen of death, but collating all the reports and traditions shows that at least half of them are harmless. Whereas the bar guest type of dog, or the shook as it's called in East Anglia, is invariably horrific in some way, the black dog is either neutral or friendly and protective. It should be considered the case, therefore, that it is the bar guest type of black dog apparition which is linked with the wild hunt. In Protestant Germany and Scandinavia, the ghost dog is nearly always diabolic. In the former case, for example, the devil is said to appear in the form of a black dog. This motif goes back many centuries, and indeed in the United Kingdom, the earliest reference which we can find which links the symbolism of the black dog with that of the wild hunt is from the 12th century. This comes from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the earliest known history of England written in the native tongue. The document was probably first compiled for King Alfred before being sent to monasteries across Britain for copying around 829 AD. Its first version spanned the period from the birth of Christ to Alfred's reign and comprised an official history of the country, but the individual copies were then kept updated in each location and began to take on more independent histories. Most versions end around the Norman conquest of 1066, but one continues until 1154, and it is in this version that we find the mention of the dog. Many writers quote a common translation of this passage, which reads that Many men both saw and heard a great number of huntsmen hunting. The huntsmen were black, huge and hideous, and rode on black horses and on black he-goats, and their hounds were jet black, with eyes like saucers and horrible. Even in this very early mention, we find a reference to the size of the eyes. This is interesting, as it's one of the key recurring themes in reports of black dog ghosts. The eyes are very often described as being as big as saucers, or as big as dinner plates. In older reports, they are sometimes referred to as red. In newer reports, they are often referred to as yellow. And this is probably one of those cultural shifts which can happen within folklore when you consider that symbols are read alongside the comparators of the time. If the dog was considered diabolic, then red would be a natural colour. In more recent times, it would be culturally more common to compare with, for example, the image of the werewolf, and hence the wolf, and this would lead to more reports of yellow eyes. There is also, it's worth noting, an interesting etymological problem with this translation of the Anglo-Saxon chronicle referencing the eyes like saucers, and that is that the word saucer derives from the 14th century, 
and hence cannot be a direct translation from the original document. The correct translation, in fact, reads that the hounds were black and big-eyed and loathsome. The meaning carries through, with the later recurring description having been juxtaposed onto the original translation, highlighting again its significance. Unfortunately, most writers still tend to quote the mistranslated version. This regional variation of the Anglo-Saxon chronicle comes from Peterborough, and it is thought that the appearance of the wild hunt in this case coincided with the appointment of a particular abbot at the monastery, Henry Dongeli, who turned out to be a poor choice. The passage continues to tell how the hunt was seen in the deer park at Peterborough, and in the woods that stretch from there to the nearby town of Stamford. In the night, the monks were said to be able to hear the huntsmen sounding their horns. Witnesses described as reliable, though we do not know who they were, said that the hunt numbered twenty or thirty, and that the disturbances went on for nine weeks, ending at Easter. Although now designated as being part of the county of Cambridgeshire, up until 1888, Peterborough sat with the boundaries of Northamptonshire, which puts it close to the Bargest and Shook areas, which have the most relevance to the inclusion of elemental black dogs within the wild hunt. The Bargest type of black dog apparition is not one that would be mistaken for a normal animal, as it's always monstrous in some way. In East Anglia, the Shook is generally a black dog haunting cliffs, fens and churchyards. The name is possibly derived from the Anglo-Saxon shoka, meaning devil. Descriptions of the way that the shuk or barguest appear monstrous vary between accounts. It's sometimes said to appear headless, or on other occasions with one eye in the middle of its forehead. In some areas it is said to appear in the form of other animals, such as a calf or a horse, and in Norfolk sometimes as a goat. Another variation on the shook and barguest type of black dog is the padfoot. This is a term that has no doubt become more familiar since J.K. Rowling adopted it as a nickname for her character Sirius Black in the Harry Potter series of stories. Black, for those who have not read the books, was able to transform himself into a black dog. Rowling uses a lot of folklore interwoven into her stories, and it will not be too difficult to also see the connection between Sirius, the dog star, and Black as a surname also in this case. Many Midland Celtic names derived from the Gaelic rather than the Welsh. W. P. Whitcutt, referring to some of the Gaelic place names found in Staffordshire, believed that the term Padfoot could derive from Badafwath, meaning ghost dog. However, this may be disputed as the Padfoot may be found in several places in Yorkshire also, such as in the case of the Padfoot of Wakefield. This took many guises, and shows why Ghost Dog may not be such a suitable derivation for the name. At Westgate, it was reported to appear to be twice the size of a calf, one of the most common sizing descriptions, but was also said to have twisted spiral horns protruding from the front of its head, certainly not a common canine description. The eyes, as we see so often, were said to fit the standard description of being as big as saucers, but in this case the coat was described as being shaggy, like a bear. The creature roamed the streets with an iron chain clanking where it was secured around one leg. It was pursued by a large pack of Gabriel's hounds, 
Anyone who saw this animal was said to have thought that they should have died. The last of the reports of this legendary Padfoot was recorded in the year 1766. Gabriel's hounds are a local derivation for the familiar image of the wild hunt, and it is interesting that in this case the wild hunt appears to be chasing another dog rather than a human witness or quarry. In this case Gabriel does not refer to the archangel of that name, but rather comes from an old word for corpse. We find the term Gabriel's hounds in some places in the southwest of the United Kingdom also. Right at the beginning of this podcast, I suggested that the Norse mythology surrounding Odin was a probable route for the image of the wild hunt. It has been argued that the geographical location of many shook areas means that the folklore of this dog, and its associated demeanour of being more evil than many of the other types of black dog, is due to settlement by the Scandinavians. The premise is that the virulence of the Vikings is responsible for much of the legendary aspects of the shook. Danes invaded in AD 869 and murdered the Angle king, Edmund, proceeding to destroy the Angle monasteries. In 1014, Guthrum was appointed Norse king in East Anglia, and it has been suggested that there is a relevance in the fact that his nickname was the Great Black Dog of Langport. In this theory, links are drawn between many black dogs being connected to water and the Viking association with the seas and oceans. It also examines the Anglo-Saxon Old English language and suggests that the Vikings and dogs may become confused in translation. For example, the Old English word for dog is hunt, which is said to be a Saxon term of abuse applied to the Vikings. Similarly, it is argued, the term wolf could mean both wolf and a cruel person. And therefore it can be extrapolated that as wolf and dog are interchangeable in Old English, the Vikings would have been referred to as wolves or dogs. They were also known as wolves of slaughter, and wore wolf coats in battle, as well as allegedly breeding large war dogs. It is also suggested that elements of Scandinavian dog lore would have entered the folklore of Britain at the time, such as the fact that the king of the Norse gods, Odin, kept two dogs, whose names meant greedy for the flesh of the dead. The name Shook, as we have seen, is probably derived from the Old English term for the devil, and the Norse god Thor also had a dog named Shukla. So the argument runs, but on closer inspection it really seems to be something of a red herring. Linguistic roots inevitably go way back, and there is probably little connection between Shuk and Shukla in other terms. There is little evidence that the Vikings entered into the British consciousness in such a way that over the following hundreds of years the folklore developed in this way. It is more likely that the Vikings led to more of a subconscious fear of the werewolf than the dog. The wolf is far more threatening as an animal. We have already noted the domesticated traits of the dog going way back to prehistoric times, and its role in human nature and it cannot realistically be argued that these are interchangeable with the wolf. As far as the Old English language arguments go, these also appear to be flawed. A wolf was a term that called for respect, whether this was for good doings or bad, and for this reason it was included in many Anglo-Saxon names, such as Beowulf. This would not have happened if it were a pure term of abuse. Hund, on the other hand, was a rather more severe term, 
and actually suggested that the person was lower than a slave. This would apply in the Anglo-Saxon community as well, not just be directed at the Vikings. So the bones of this theory can largely be discounted. So if it is unlikely that the Shook variant of the Black Dog, which is the most relevant type for connecting to the Wild Hunt, has its roots from within Scandinavian history in this way, what other connections can we find between this motif and the Wild Hunt? The Black Dog often acts within some form of liminal or boundary state. Sometimes this is in the form of dogs that are connected to particular runs or stretches of road, sometimes as some form of guardian, and sometimes in connection to dream states. If we consider any of these boundary states as being a connection between our physical world and some other world in folklore terms, and we can also consider the black dog in these states as having the appearance of coming from the next world. This is certainly true of those stories and sightings where the dog is considered as some form of hellhound. There is a real mythological link in these cases, and as such in normal terms of symbolism, this would suggest that the dog somehow came from the sky or from the earth. Appearances such as these can be presaged by or accompanied by particular meteorological or geological conditions such as storms or, in rarer cases, earthquakes. So, we can find a link here with the stormy conditions which accompany the wild hunt. With the idea of links to the weather, then mythologies inevitably form around particular outstanding natural events. The great storm of Widdicombe in the Moor on Dartmoor in 1638 where the church was struck by lightning, bringing down a pinnacle from the church tower, led to the development of the mythology surrounding the devil having visited the church, and his horse having either been tethered to, or hitting the church, as it flew across the sky, having claimed a soul from the congregation. A similar freak storm hit the church of Bungay in the market town of Suffolk, and a similar mythology developed around this event, only this time concerning the black dog. The story is probably one of the most famous in the Black Dog canon. There can be no doubt that at both Widdicombe and in Suffolk, these storms were real events. The legend and lore has been mapped on in what were far more superstitious times than those we live in now. It would be quite natural to equate some form of demonic intervention with such a catastrophe in a holy place. The church records that still exist certainly describe the storm, and they do not mention the dog ghost. This establishing of a canine connection with storms is not unique in folklore. In some parts of America, dogs were said to be considered to be conductors of lightning. This is especially the case if the animal is wet, and particularly with reference to the dog's tail. Some people are known to have driven their dogs from a property during a thunderstorm in order to protect from a strike. Other animals in folklore who exhibit similar characteristics are horses and mules. Their eyes are said to attract lightning. In terms of addressing the landscape in which the black dog is appearing, we can consider the black dog of Bungay, for example, to be a sky dog, this being the obvious origination point for a storm. So here we may find another link with the wild hunt. In Teutonic lands, the wild hunt was often abroad during the twelve days of Christmas. This period, when the sun is at its weakest in the northern hemisphere, 
represented a time of crisis to primitive man. It was a time when life failed, and elemental chaos rose from the surface of the earth. For twelve days, monsters and ghosts roamed the earth. In some cultures, a different animal was dominant each day. In Guernsey, there was a tradition that people travelling at this time were likely to fall foul of will-o'-the-wisps and black dogs. Other countries had their own demons or monsters which were abroad during this period. In an effort to overcome these happenings before the return of the sun, fires would be lit, greenery brought into the house, and people would guise the spirits to make light of their fears and of the creatures. These things lie behind some of the pagan aspects of Christmas, and were quashed by the church in medieval times. Remnants did remain, and appeared in a watered-down form as hobby horses, hobby goats or stags, and even in one case as a hobby dog, accompanied by a man with a stick. Sometimes, as the Teutonic hunt passed through a house on its dreadful route, it was said to leave behind on the hearth a little dog, which howled until it woke up the whole household. The people then had to get up and brew some beer in eggshells, whereupon the creature would exclaim, Although I am as old as the Bohemian forest, I never saw such a thing in my life before. Then it would jump up, rush off and vanish. But if this charm was not applied, the people of the house were obliged to feed the creature well and let it lie upon the hearth for a whole year until Wode returned and took it away with him. Should we consider that this old tradition has some connection with the leaving of a glass of whisky and a carrot by the chimney on Christmas Eve? Are we prepared to take the risk to ignore this tradition and end up with a fat bearded man and a reindeer bedding down in our fireplace for the next twelve months? Most wild hunts, according to tradition, appear to ride abroad on stormy nights. However, there appear to be very few black dogs which either forecast storms or cause them. In terms of folklore, there is little distinction between these two things. The most well known is obviously the black dog of Bungay, but it takes quite in-depth research to find many more examples. Marie Lamont, in 1662, said that the devil in the guise of a brown dog helped her to raise a storm. Lamont, who was 18 years old at the time, was tried as a witch in the Scottish parish of Inverkip, which was known for its zealous persecution of women as witches in the second half of the 17th century. We've already noted that there are various different characters who are said to be leaders of the wild hunt, depending on the geographic location of the tradition. Over time, the myth of the hunt gets modified so that it begins to incorporate local or newer gods and folk heroes. For example, King Arthur is now one of the cited leaders of the hunt. In Somerset, an old lane close to Cadbury Castle was called King Arthur's Lane, and as recently as the 19th century, it was still said that the king and his pack of dogs could be heard riding along it on stormy nights in the winter. In Devon, there has more recently been the inclusion of Sir Francis Drake as a hunt leader through Dartmoor folk tales. In some cases, the premise of the hunt is to chase down sinners or the unbaptized, this being mapped onto the tradition by the church. In Devon, in these cases, we find the Yeth hounds, or wished hounds, and in Cornwall, 
Dando and his dogs, or the devil and his dandy dogs. In this version, Dando wanted a drink, but the huntsman having no more said he would go to hell for it. A stranger appeared shortly afterwards and offered Dando a drink. He then subsequently took Dando's game, followed by himself. His dogs set out in pursuit. We can also sometimes find in the southwest of the UK cases of the wild hunt being linked to notorious or evil characters. For instance, Squire Richard Cable lived at Brook, near to Buckfast Lee, where he died in 1677. Local tradition credits him with a reputation not unlike that of Black Hugo in The Hound of the Baskervilles, although there are no details given specifically as to his crimes. His death was said to be suitably unpleasant for a hunter of village maidens. He was chased across the moor by the wishtowns until he dropped dead in one version of the story. In another version, it is said that as he lay dying in his house, wishtowns bayed outside having come to escort his soul to hell. It is possible that the story of Cable is one of the tales which contributed to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's forming of the Baskerville story. The remains of Buckfastley Church, which was almost completely destroyed by fire in an act of vandalism in July 1992, are perched on the top of the hill overlooking the village. It is here that Squire Cable is buried outside the south door in an altar tomb. It is said that the parish were in a quandary about how to bury such an evil man in such a manner that his brutal spirit would not rise up and continue to plague them. Finally, they buried him deeply with a heavy stone on his head. They piled the large altar tomb over his grave, and then constructed what appears to be a symbolic prison to contain the tomb. It is solidly built, with a wide iron grille on the side facing the church, and on the opposite side is a strong wooden door with a locked keyhole. Young boys used to dare each other to walk clockwise around the building thirteen times and insert a little finger into the keyhole, which the prisoner would then gnaw at the tip. Despite all of these precautions, it was still said that on stormy nights the squire would rise up and join the wild hunt on their pursuit through the skies. If, like me, you are fascinated by the folklore surrounding black dog apparitions, then as always there is a supplementary e-magazine available to support this episode. This contains not only a transcript of the episode, but more information on black dog apparitions, notes and suggested reading and beautiful illustrations. Many hours of work go into these supplements, yet they are available for just 99p, or just over a dollar. We do this because we believe that this folklore should be made accessible to everyone as widely as possible, and the minimal charge just helps us to cover our costs and keep this show free to listen to. You can download the magazine from our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. Visit the episodes page to find this and previous magazines. You can also sign up to our free monthly newsletter to get advance notice of future guests, exclusive offers and more. Click onto the contact page on the site to do that. Some of you have been very kind in your offers of support for the show using the donate button on our website. This helps us to secure the future of the podcast moving forward and will enable us to develop bigger and better things for you. 
there's no pressure. But if you're enjoying what we give you and you want to show your support, then the button is there. We love to hear your stories, and you've been emailing in some fascinating personal folklore tales. Use the contact form on the website to send us your tales, and where we can, and you will allow it, we will feature them on future shows. In fact, in the next edition of the Folklore Podcast, we will do just that. One of our listeners sent us a personal story which will be just wonderful to introduce our guest on the next show. My guest on the next Folklore Podcast is David Waldron from Federation University, Australia, who will be addressing the subject of ghost hoaxing. See you next time. Thank you.